ending Nice and tidy It's a rule I learned in school Get your money Every Friday Happy endings are the rule So divide up those in darkness From the ones who walk in light Light them up, boys, there's your picture Drop the Ah, oh, this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is December the 9th. Here it comes, Jingle Bells. Oh, oh, bloody hell, I don't feel any worse at Christmas than I do the rest of the year, but there is a somewhat increase in the, in the brouhaha, the fuss we're having. The KPFA Holiday Crafts Fair this weekend. You can hear the ads from morning to night on this very station. It is a very celebratory thing. Uh, you can go there and do your retail therapy. I consider it my holiday party. I try to be very, very careful because, you know, uh, I can afford about... I, last year I bought a... Uh, what year was it? I bought the most wonderful pair of earrings made out of safety pins. I just love them. They're hanging on my wall. <laughs> I use them for art. All the wearable art, I just hang it on the back of my closet and look at it, you know. Once in a while, I wear it away from home and people stare at me. Never mind. This week, I want to talk about family values in the White House, but I picked up... uh Yes, I wanted to pick up, well, I, I was looking at my New Yorkers this morning, and it occurred to me that the New Yorker magazine has become my script. I think you might just as well get the New Yorker and skip Jennifer. I, I think I'll get both my grandchildren's subscriptions to the New Yorker, and then I don't even have to nag them, you know. I was thinking that... If you come to the crafts fair, you should give me your book list for the president's daughters, ages 7 and 11, I think. And I'll see if yours agrees with mine. It is so significant what these girls will be learning in the next eight, let us hope, eight years. Uh, I really, really find myself excited about it. Uh, I know that's not sophisticated, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so exciting to think that, you know, we'll have secular humanists in the White House, family values returning to the first family. But I was looking in my New Yorkers and I saw that George Bush, uh, George W. Bush, has uh, decided to... Uh, Burn all of his bridges, yes, après moi the deluge. Uh, there's a wonderful description in the November 24th issue of the New Yorker of the Midnight Hour, all the things George plans to do, you know, the sort of thing, when you leave uh, one abode, you wreck it and uh, move on to something. He's moving on to Dallas. 
Lucky Dallas. Anyway, uh, the uh, New Yorker, uh, Lauren, is it Lauren Call? No, 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 it's uh, Elizabeth Colbert in the New Yorker. Under Midnight Hour, the talk of the town, she says, Bush has entered into his midnight period. You know, midnight, the last minute. You just have to wreck everything you can lay your hands on. She says, it promises to be a dark time indeed among the many new regulations or deregulations. The administration uh, proposes rules that would make it harder for the government to limit workers' exposure to toxins, eliminate environmental review for decisions affecting fisheries, ease restrictions on companies that blow up mountains to get at the coal underneath them. Other midnight regulations in the works include rules to allow factory farms to ignore the Clean Water Act, rules making it tougher for employees to take family or medical leave, Rules that would effectively gut the Endangered Species Act. And there's a great deal of detail about that. Uh, (laughs) So many creatures uh, doomed. Anyway, the New York Times uh, recently put it, quote, So little time, so much damage. Uh... She goes on to say, why do presidents wait till the last minute to push through changes they've had the power to impose all along? Well, legal scholars have advanced a variety of explanations ranging from megalomania to simple distraction. You know, federal agencies like ninth graders have a hard time focusing until they're up against a deadline. Tell me about it, right? Uh <laughs> She goes on to say, none of these explanations is adequate to the current situation. What distinguishes this administration in its final days, as in its earlier ones, is the purity of its cynicism. I will repeat that. The purity of its cynicism. White House officials haven't even bothered to argue that these new rules are in the public interest. Such a claim would, in any event, be impossible to defend. As just about every midnight regulation being proposed is evidently a gift to a favored industry. Ah, she goes on a big list here. Uh, Clean Air Act. Oh, golly, 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 golly. Uh, Anyway... She ends this section saying, if you thought the first hundred days of the Bush administration were bad, just wait and see what the last hundred could bring. Uh, <laughs> remember, remember Ronald Reagan's second term? He began his second term. He said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Anyway, uh, she goes on, Elizabeth Colbert goes on too say that Representative Edward Markey of Massachusetts warns that Democratic leaders in the House and the Senate have already indicated that they will try to rescind the most egregious of Bush's midnight regulations. Uh, She goes on to describe the ways in which they might do this. Uh, Once in office, Barack Obama could ask his agencies to go through the rulemaking process all over again. But by the time that was finished, 
a good deal of the damage might already have been done. Oh, Macbeth, yes, what's done cannot be undone. Wash the blood off your hands. Once a power plant has been rebuilt, Elizabeth Colbert says, once a power plant has been rebuilt, it can't really be unrebuilt. The Bush administration, probably as a result of its own experience, is now trying to craft rules that are as difficult as possible to reverse. <laughs> Generally speaking, major federal regulations go into effect 60 days after they are published. Okay, 60 days before Bush leaves office would be November 20th. She says it's going to be a busy week. It's going to be a bumpy night, boys and girls, right? <laughs> There's some wonderful stuff in this issue again about Marion Robinson, the first granny. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, for Thursday morning, morning show, I had some stuff about the, uh, the relatives that are moving into the White House. They compare to Lincoln's in-laws, right? Yes, uh, they compare them to Lincoln's in-laws. Uh, it's so much fun. Uh, Malia, the little daughter who is 10 or 11, I think she's 11 now, she told the reporters, I enjoy decorating, so I get to get this whole new room and do whatever I want. <laughs> anyway, um, Margaret Truman called the White House the Great White Jail. Uh, let's see. Uh, one of the Johnson girls, Lyndon Johnson's daughter, Linda Johnson, she says, I was a narcissistic teenager and I said, Oh my God, why are we having to walk over to the Capitol, Daddy? And he said, Darling, because this is a great day and the Congress of the United States will never look the same again. <laughs> anyway, this piece in the New Yorker Talk of the Town goes on to talk about the generations of boys and girls who inhabited the White House, a kind of an, call it an underground society. There's young Tad Lincoln, a hellion who was uh, notorious for kicking balls into mirrors. He enjoyed reviewing troop movements with his father. Uh, every afternoon, Teddy Roosevelt would join his son, Quinton, that's Theodore Roosevelt, in the attic for a game of Chase the President. <laughs> and before 1998, that was a family activity. <laughs> oh, dear. Ah, oh, poor Bill Clinton. They'll never let him off the hook. Anyway. Alice Roosevelt, the uh, daughter of Theodore, uh, she told Susan Ford, uh, that would be Alice Roosevelt Longworth, she said, have a hell of a good time while you're there. The Johnson sisters planted notes for Tricia and Julie Nixon, especially in the solarium. Uh, Linda Johnson said, uh, I had courted there. We just wished them some precious moments. <laughs> Lucy and I 
were of the age to be entertaining dates, and of course, you don't particularly care to be discovered by your father. When one of us saw him, we would try to message ahead that he was coming uh, your way. We would go up the back staircase, figuring we might be able to get there quicker than Daddy could on the elevator. Anyway, we can look forward to more of these delightful shenanigans. Uh, <laughs> I do think it's fascinating that um, there are comparisons made with uh, Abraham Lincoln, because, of course, Abraham Lincoln's in-laws uh, were notorious uh, as office seekers. Lincoln tried to see them, well, he saw them as a metaphor metaphor of the nation as a great family. <laughs> yes, we're all in this together, boys and girls. That's what I call family values. Uh, we shall see. We shall see. Uh, in any case, I hope to see everybody at the KPFA Holiday Crafts Fair with your lists of the correct books for uh, Malia and Sasha. I have taken Lord of the Flies off the list. Um, I gifted my grandson with it, thinking that it would be, uh, what you'll call that, a subversive book. He looked at me and said, I've read that. He's 13. <laughs> He's reading Solzhenitsyn at the moment. Anyway, I gave him a copy of the New Yorker, the uh, special election issue. I bought a couple more of them. I am amazed. Uh, it's the issue with the uh, shining white house and then darkness surrounding it everywhere. And the big O in the New Yorker looks like a moon above the uh, Lincoln Memorial. No, that's what it is, not the white. It's the Lincoln Memorial. Pay attention, Jennifer. Try to get your imagery straight. Being literate in images is the task of those of us who were raised on words. Yes, Read images properly. Now, this terrific copy, let's see, what's the date on this? It's right after the election. So, it has to be the 17th of November issue, right. This is the wonderful issue uh, uh, that has the article, The Joshua Generation, and then another article, that's by the editor of The New Yorker, and then... George Packer has written uh, The New Liberalism, all about the Democratic or the Democratic Party's interpretation of liberalism. Uh, oh, boy. Uh, FDR, inaugurated 4 March 1933. Uh, yes. That's nine months, yes, nine months later I was born. I must have been conceived, yes, uh, just when he was, uh, no, I was conceived, yes, at his inauguration. That is a trip. Seventy-five years ago, <laughs> I had my birthday party last Friday. It's the anniversary of the repeal of Prohibition, 5 December 1933. History is fascinating. The whole nation was drinking, having a little booze. Mother had gin in a finger bowl in the hospital. Uh, and the whole country uh, was allowed to uh, have another drink. Uh, I'm looking here. 
at the piece by David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, who has just come right out and endorsed the Democrats. Now, The New Yorker never used to do things like that, but the last eight years has pushed them over, over the edge, and they finally decided to be uh, front men for the Democratic Party. Uh, the Joshua generation is all about race and the campaign of Barack Obama. It is my hope that now we will be able, yes, to talk about race without apologizing and without being, uh, what is the word, inhibited. What uh, David Remnick points out is that Barack Obama won his campaign with language. That's why I love him, because he really, honest to gosh, reinvented, uh, what do we call it, rhetoric. Uh, he used a little hyperbole, but not much. He's still using words <laughs> like, like pragmatic. What was it he said the other night? Several. I keep writing down Obama's phrases, and uh, uh, it's amazing to have a, a, a person of reason, a thoughtful person, a person who does not speak in Orwellian gibberish. Uh, David Remnick says, Barack Obama could not run his campaign for the presidency based on political accomplishment or on the heroic service of his youth. His record was too slight. His Democratic and Republican opponents were right. He ran largely on language, on the expression of a country's potential and the self-expression of a complicated man who could reflect and lead that country. Footnote here of my own, the wonderful audio tapes that uh, I've been listening to. I think I've listened to them through twice now. There are six tapes. It's the autobiography, and Barack reads them himself. I highly recommend them. I got my copies at the Ashby Flea Market, and there's so many wonderful stories there, and Barack Obama, I think he's a very good reader. I don't know if he's really a great actor exactly, but yes, yes, I give him points for being a very good actor. His neo-colonial accent, when he uses the voice of his uh, Kenyan relatives, is terrific. You have to remember that when he went back to Kenya as an adult to meet his father's mother, his grandmother, she spoke no English. His wife, Michelle, he says, has learned some of his grandmother's language. Uh, but his, Barack's parents, uh, of course, are both dead now. And mostly his family is his in-laws. Uh, anyway, David Remnick goes on to say, A powerful thematic undercurrent of Barack's oratory and prose was race. Not race as invoked by his predecessors in electoral politics or in the civil rights movement. Not race as an insistence on tribe or on redress. Rather, Obama made his biracial ancestry a metaphor for his ambition to create a broad coalition of support to rally Americans behind a narrative of moral and political progress. He was not the hero, yes, he was just 
the culmination, yes, of the movement, yes. It's so interesting. Last week, we had a call from a listener who said that they asked the question, well, what happens to those of us who are not mixed race? You know, I was talking about our Creole culture, the fact that we are no longer, uh, what is it, the land of Eurocentric white folks. And uh, uh, the answer, of course, to that question is all he has to do, the listener, all he has to do is go and have his... Uh, uh, DNA tested, and he will find that he is a person of mixed race. <laughs> All of us are. All you have to do is go back a few generations. Anyway, uh, David Remnick goes on to say, in October 2005, two months after Hurricane Katrina, Rosa Parks died at the age of 92 in Detroit. Her single act of defiance on the evening of December the 1st, 1955, that is her refusal to vacate her seat near the front of the Cleveland Avenue bus in Montgomery, Alabama, what Martin Luther King Jr. called the ultimate gesture of, I can take it no longer, was a precipitating act of the city's bus boycott and the civil rights movement. For two days... Rosa Parks' body lay in state at the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, an honor accorded only 29 times before, and then on November the 2nd in Detroit, there was a funeral service at the Greater Grace Temple Church. Thousands lined the streets to wave farewell, to sing the old anthems and hymns. 4,000 packed the sanctuary. The service lasted seven hours. <laughs> Bishop T.D. Jakes, pastor of uh, the Potter's House, a Dallas church, said that funeral was so long that I can hardly remember it. Everyone was there. Jesse Jackson, the Clintons, Al Sharpton, Aretha Franklin, and a phalanx of preachers all paid tribute to Parks. Bill Clinton reminisced about riding segregated buses in Jim Crow, Arkansas. And then, feeling the liberating effect of Park's act, yes, on the street, the Marines played Amazing Grace on bagpipes. The congregants sang, she would not be moved. Uh, <laughs> Obama, then the sole African-American member in the United States Senate, had also been invited to speak. As he sat in the pews awaiting his turn, this is the way he writes it in his book, The Audacity of Hope, his mind wandered back to the devastation of Hurricane Katrina, the news footage from New Orleans of a body laid near a wall of shirtless young men, their legs churning through dark waters, their arms draped with whatever goods they had managed to grab from nearby stores, the spark of chaos in their eyes. A week after the hurricane, Obama had accompanied Bill and Hillary Clinton and George H.W. Bush to Houston, where they visited the thousands of refugees from New Orleans who were camped out at the Astrodome. One woman told Obama, We didn't have nothing before the storm. Now we got less than nothing. The remark was a rebuke Obama felt to Donald Rumsfeld and other Bush administration officials who had given him and fellow legislators a briefing on the federal response to the hurricane. Their expressions, he recalled, bristled with confidence 
and displayed not the slightest bit of remorse. <laughs> In the church, Obama thought of how little had happened since. Cars still stuck in trees on rooftops, predatory construction firms, winning hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts, even as they skirted affirmative action laws and hired illegal immigrants for their crews. Obama's anger, which is rarely discernible in his voice or in his demeanor, ran deep. The sense that the nation had reached a transformative moment that it had had its conscience stirred out of a long slumber and would launch a renewed war on poverty. All that had quickly died away, he wrote. It is amazing how quickly, yes, I'm interrupting David Remnick here. Uh, anyway, when Obama got to the lectern at Rosa Parks' funeral, he betrayed no emotion. He raised no words of protest. He was restrained and brief as if taking pains to say nothing to compete with the Clintons, who had forged a close bond with the African-American community over the years, or let alone the older organizers, activists, and preachers. Obama was still a relative stranger to the audience in Detroit. I keep thinking about that. I'm breaking in here. Footnote, how for so many of the elders... In the civil rights movement, Obama must seem kind of an upstart, you know. Uh, here he comes along and I don't suppose you could say reaps the benefits, but he did win the election, this young, young man. Uh, anyway, a former mayor of New Orleans, Mark Morial, said, in terms of operating in the space of African-American politics, People hadn't seen him very much. Uh, they didn't really know who he was or where he came from or what he was all about. I mean, you don't come in there as a senator and try to upstage anyone or abuse the podium and give a speech that's too good. He has to think, my presence is enough. The people who worked with Rosa Parks, this was their time to speak. It was only on March 4th, 2007, a few weeks after he announced his candidacy for president, that Obama explicitly inserted himself in the timeline of American racial politics. At the Brown Chapel AME Church in Selma, Alabama, he joined older civil rights leaders and churchmen in commemorating the voting rights marches of a generation ago. From the pulpit, Obama then paid tribute to what he called the Moses generation. Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Anna Cooper, the Reverend Joseph Lowry, the men and women of the movement who marched and suffered, but who, in so many cases, didn't cross over the river to see the promised land. He thanked them and praised their courage and honored their martyrdom. Then he spent much of his speech on his own generation called the Joshua generation. He tried to answer the question, What is called of us? 
life had improved for African Americans, but we shouldn't forget that better is not good enough. Discrimination still existed, history was being forgotten, schools were underfunded, citizens left uninsured, especially minorities. People were out looking for that Oprah money. They had forgotten the need for service, discipline, political will. Uh, this article is in the uh, November 17th New Yorker. I gave this to my grandson to take to his school. It's the one that has also the essay by George Packer called The New Liberalism. It has a hilarious picture of Barack Obama as FDR, yes, with the big grin and the cigarette holder in the hat. Uh, I just wonder where all this is going to lead, whether we are going to see a transformative day. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the shadow out of Want to have a really green holiday season? Eco Holiday SF is decking the halls of San Francisco's Galleria Design Center Sunday, December 14th from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Enjoy sipping on organic tea or a cocktail while you shop for unique gifts from local green businesses. Live entertainment, DJs, costume characters, do-it-yourself workshops, children's activities, and yummy organic food. Tickets at the door are $5 for adults, $3 for bicyclists, and free for children. Lots of parking and wheelchair accessible. Visit EcoHolidaySF.com now for more details and join the economic evolution. This is a benefit for San Francisco Urban Alliance for Sustainability.